Hello and welcome to Cane and Rinse. We have another special episode today. We have an interview with an author of the book, Enjoying It, Candy Crush and Capitalism, as well as an assistant professor and editor of the Everyday Analysis blog and series of books, Alfie Bowne. Joining us today on the question block. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's good to be on Kane and Rinse. I'm a big fan of the podcast and the website. <laughs> well, thank you. We're, we're glad to hear that. It's been a little up and down recently. Uh, we're recording this right after the site uh, just kind of struggled back to life after our hosting issues. And so uh, to give the listener some context for when all that's happening, but uh, I, I think we're up and running again. And so there's a, a Zelda, mm-hmm. uh, Zelda podcast coming out, which I've been uh, keeping an eye on, on out for. So looking forward to seeing that. Oh, yeah, that's right. I think we've had uh, Link's Awakening in the can for a little while now, but it just got delayed because of the uh, uh, all the server issues. But should be smooth sailing from here on out. All right, so now you are located in Hong Kong right now. Is that a, a permanent abode or is that, uh, are you there on business or what is the story behind that? Um, it is permanent now, but it's new. Um, we moved here in September. Um, I've been at the University of Manchester for, for nearly a decade um, and uh, my wife uh, finished her degree in, in Liverpool uh, and we decided to move out here. Uh, so I, I've, I've got a job here uh, in a small university uh, and it's pretty good. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it. My wife enjoying it we've just had a baby uh she is about eight weeks old so we've just got here but uh we are you know we're staying for the foreseeable future started our little family here so yeah we're liking hong kong at the moment that's exciting are you in the city or are you out of ways i kind of um, only know hong kong for the big kind of urban metropolitan yeah. center i'm not well, sure if there are suburbs not really i mean we're in what what would hmm. uh you know what hong kongers call a suburb um but it's only like mm-hmm. uh 10 minutes from the center and it's uh, giant high rises even where we are so i think you know <laughs> when, uh-huh. when you see a picture of hong kong um from from the sky uh, you know you're seeing the whole thing even the suburbs are inside there so it is all this one big metropolis mm-hmm. and we're we're somewhere in there wow. i have always wanted to visit it it seems like uh, some really neat architecture there in particular love to see all the buildings and stuff but um yeah let's let's chat video games for a little bit um, you have been doing some writing, particularly exploring the mobile game space. Uh, you named your book after Candy Crush, and inside it, you explore more of those uh, kind of handheld, um, you know, cell phone game type experiences. Uh, tell us more about about that. Great, yeah, yeah, uh, I do. And uh, you know, um, this was uh, my first book, um, and as you say, it's called "In uh, Enjoying It: Candy Crush and Capitalism." Uh, it's not exclusively about capitalism. It's uh, it's not exclusively about Candy Crush. It kind of is exclusively about capitalism, uh, uh, but it's about mobile phone games and and what I would call distractions. Uh, so not not just games, but also websites, listicles, uh, and other forms of distraction entertainment uh, so mm. mobile phone games is a big one and also I guess uh, internet tab games and other kinds of distractions and my book was a kind of analysis of the role these things play in our kind of capitalist society um, so that that was my kind of starting point and, and I'm now uh, thinking of a, of a second project um, which is going to be on on what we would call kind of video games proper so like AAA games and indie games uh, and how they relate <laughs> in a much more complex way to our um 
kind of capitalist society that we're in. So this first book, yeah, it's brief. It's 77 pages long. It's a very quick read. And it's just a little argument, really, for how we should look at these distractions, which kind of so much characterize our lives today uh, in a new kind of light. And by capitalism, I was getting the impression from what I was reading that uh, you're not referring to necessarily the microtransaction economy, but rather to um, uh, just the, the more general... Uh, idea of how the this type of entertainment influences the workplace environment. Absolutely, it's it's about the uh, culture and politics of the workplace, uh, and how um, you know. So I'm specifically interested in in uh, yeah, capitalist uh, the capitalist workplace, the structure of capitalist work, uh, and the experience of actually working in, in modern society. And I think that sort of yeah, as you as you say yourself, distracting games, distracting websites, distracting social media sites play an increasing role uh, in our experiences of work. And I, I guess I'm, 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 my belief is that that hasn't really been, uh, that role, that increasing role that these things play hasn't really been uh, considered and discussed. And, and my book was a kind of a little attempt to, to start that conversation off, really. Yeah, you highlight a term uh, kind of hearkening back to the Victorians that you call rational recreation. What is this and how does it play into the mobile game conversation? There's something I actually kind of uh, stole from my wife um, because she, she was studying history. <laughs> she was studying history and, and she, she was studying uh, what's called rational recreation in the Victorian period. And she, she sort of uh, came home and, and sort of told me all about this. It's something I, I hadn't known about. And what it basically is, is that uh, in the 19th century, um, Britain, was on, Britain was on the brink of revolution. And um, in order to prevent prevent the working class uprising, um, a number of attempts were made to regulate and control uh, people's enjoyment in order to uh, prevent them from uprising and overthrowing those kind of forces in power. Um, and uh, what what that you know that's what what I was learning about via my wife and what I thought was that this is uh, we're in a kind of second wave of that today where I believe that uh, a a kind of filling up of our time with distracting games uh, mobile phone games internet listicles and websites uh, is serving a kind of controlling purpose to prevent which prevents us from kind of interrogating our uh, conditions of employment and ensures that we don't revolt hmm. so in uh, in a way to kind of placate the dissatisfied workers to maybe not let them even realize their their own dissatisfaction well uh, many sort of plays out in in a couple of different ways so one uh, yeah is exactly what you're kind of touching upon i think that um my experience uh, i mean i've i've done some uh, now I, I like my job very much. Um, it involves video games, uh, so how can I not? Um, but sure. I, I've done some uh, pretty miserable jobs, such as uh, like working in a, in a horrible gastro pub kitchens, and and also uh, even um, tele sales, and uh, even sort of on telephone debt collection. You know, some real miserable jobs. Mm. And uh, mm -hmm. my my experience of these things has, has been this: that like. Um, well, whereas we would used to use our kind of um, five-minute break, for instance, to um, talk to our colleagues, for example, about how awful our working conditions were, uh, mm -hmm. or perhaps even just sit by ourselves and reflect on 
our experiences of work. Uh, and another example would be journeys to and from work, uh, which kind of used to be spent thinking about work that we had to do or work that we'd just done, or perhaps discussing with uh, colleagues uh, the work we'd done. And I think now what we have is, is, a, is a sense that every, every spare 30 seconds is fed into a distraction of some kind, uh, usually technological distraction, um, and in, so yes, it prevents reflection uh, and on our working conditions mm. uh, and discussion uh, of our working conditions, and therefore, as you rightly say, uh, possibly even prohibits us from realizing, uh, you know, the, how dissatisfied we are, let alone doing anything about it. Yeah, it's interesting because when people talk about um, using technology and these uh, kind of distracting games and websites and stuff in place of interacting with our coworkers, uh, most of the time the way that that's framed is in lowering a worker's institutional commitment because they're not able to you know, make those social uh, social connections with those that are around them but um, kind of instead you're approaching it from the opposite angle that you know maybe the uh, the the memories and the thoughts of dissatisfaction don't have enough time to fully kind of crystallize if they're erased by pleasurable memories and uh, and replaced almost you know entirely and immediately. Uh, that that well, that's absolutely uh, that's a good, uh, absolutely it, and it's, it's a good way of putting it. Mm. And I think that uh, yes, it, we're prevented from even kind of consciously. These things remain uh, un- more unconscious. It doesn't stop us being unhappy. Um, you know, we're just as dissatisfied with our conditions of our employment uh, but it, it mm-hmm. keeps those things unconscious uh, pro- pro- prohibiting them from kind of rising to the surface of our consciousness at which point we could potentially at least do something about it uh, so yeah that's a good that's a good way of putting it the, the other kind of extension of the argument I make in the book is to do with guilt uh, is to do with the special function that guilt plays uh, in relation to these experiences of gaming so um, I'm very interested in how we feel guilty afterwards and possibly overcompensate uh, by working even harder for our kind of capitalist employer uh, due to the due <laughs> uh, to the sort of guilt that the game that the temporary distraction has hmm. instilled in us uh, so you kind of feel like you're wasting your employer's time and money by flipping your angry birds or something absolutely and, that, and that's exactly what i'm trying to say you're not doing like it appears to us like there's nothing your employer would like less than for you mm-hmm. to be playing Angry Birds under the table uh, or for you to have a secret tab of uh, Twitter or BuzzFeed or uh, whatever your particular vice is. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty addicted to cookie clicker myself. Uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, so th- these things appear to be the last thing your employer would want. Uh, they appear to be a distraction from productivity. They're totally unproductive. They're totally useless. And my argument is that that's, that's, uh, the reverse is true. These things are are um, helping your employer out because after you uh, take your temporary distraction, you feel unconsciously maybe or consciously sometimes uh, a sense of guilt for what you've done and you uh, overcompensate by working harder to repay the kind of debt you've incurred uh, via the, the distraction you, you've t- sort of taken part in. So, um, you know, and that, that uh, is becoming more and more clear in that there are certain companies which um, actually 
use video games in the workplace and have kind of apparently proven uh, via statistics that it does make you work harder if you've had five minutes on a video game uh, and you can pay a company to come into your workplace and do that and the the, the less uh, extreme version is that employers do let you in them for the most part have a little tab open uh, and I think that uh, yeah it's 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 the case that we think these things are a total waste of time but they're actually turning us into very efficient capitalist workers via this kind of guilt mm. function so that we go back to work and input data quicker uh, after our little distraction. I'm pursuing a uh, graduate degree in clinical psychology, and so it's not necessarily my field, but I do work alongside uh, industrial organizational psychologists. We have many kind of overlapping classes and stuff like that, but uh, you know, they tend to approach this kind of thing from the perspective that the old adage that a happy worker is an efficient worker and all of these little distractions are just ways of kind of preventing burnout and overloading on stress and they're just kind of you know letting some steam out of the tea kettle but i i do like that this um this alternative approach and perhaps a little bit more cynical even that uh, it instills a um, you know this this feeling of guilt uh, rather than uh, relieving the stress it adds a different type of stress that encourages them to work more efficiently towards um, towards their proper ends mm, right i mean th- there is that that is the classic idea about these are you know that games just prevent you becoming unhappy and and i actually think um, it is more cynical what i'm saying i think it's it's even i could mm-hmm. be even stronger and say that i think these things are making us totally miserable by keeping us in a it, so as we, we kind of covered i think just about it's a kind of double function right so the game the distraction it stops you confronting the conditions of your employment and it makes you feel guilty so that you return to work with a renewed passion uh, mm. to work hard for your employer. So it's kind of got this double function. So I think they make us more miserable <laughs> in in some ways because uh, mm-hmm. they allow that this kind of system to proliferate mm. uh, further and further um, without kind of being interrogated. So I guess what I'm saying is we, we just need to kind of yeah start to explore these kind of uh, other psychological effects that that the that the games might be having and and of course your employer is not in on it they they're probably on their computers uh, taking just as many distractions as you this right, is a cultural right. phenomenon and no one's kind of in charge of it uh, but perhaps if we kind of notice it happening uh, it might be something we 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 can start to sort of dislodge or at least be aware of i i certainly know that feeling of of wasting some time at work and then feeling like Oh, I don't want anybody to notice, so I have to get my numbers up so everything looks right at the end of the day, and then I probably do better that day than I have done any day before, because I am kind of compelled to uh, make up for any <laughs> any differences, so I wouldn't be caught on the back end. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely, and, and, and I've experienced the, the same many times, and, and uh, yeah. So so those are my, the kind of thing I'm saying, it's, it's, it's that it's, pretty straightforward in a way once you've kind of discussed it you know this is a uh, the argument i'm making uh, that the, the distraction plays this very important role in our kind of workplace and it, it sort of changes what we conceive of as work and, and and how we relate to our workplaces and so but so that is particularly perhaps relevant for uh, like the things we've mentioned mobile phone games which of course are a massively booming industry and other kinds of distracting websites and online games stuff like that but so what i'm now hoping to kind of move into is, is something i suppose which is is quite different really which is the kind of uh study of of video games and the philosophy and politics of video games Mm. in a much more uh 
in a much more general, much more detailed sense, because I don't think that all video games are just capitalist distraction. Absolutely not. I think video games right. can be some of the most interesting texts uh, that our culture kind of produces. So I'm now looking to do kind of the opposite. I've, I've had my cynical uh, uh, discussion about uh, the horrible role that distracting games play in culture, and now I want to sort of look at how interesting and radical and, and important uh, many kind of video games can be in society. So I'm hoping that the next project will be a lot less uh, cynical, as you say. <laughs> well, nothing wrong with a little cynicism. And, you know, you highlighted a couple examples of, uh, you know, Candy Crush and um, Cookie Clicker. And, you know, it can certainly be said that there are, you know, many layers of the design and of the um, just kind of experiential storytelling that these uh, kind of impart to the player that are blazing new ground, whether that's, you know, good or bad or, or whatever direction you uh, kind of choose to perceive that as. But, uh, you know, there is some uh, some real video game design choices being made here and new new trails being blazed. So, you know, there, there certainly is overlap between the two pursuits. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There is. And, and, and many, uh, you know, when I kind of analyze a video game at the moment, what I'm doing is just taking one game at a time and trying to kind of work out what role do I think this game plays in relation to uh, our kind of social structure. So I've been looking at this new game, uh, um, Stardew Valley, you know, it's like number one on steam. Is mm-hmm. it, have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen it. I've not played it yet, but I've, uh, I'm aware of it. It's uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty much what you expect. You know, it's like harvest moon. Yeah. It's kind of the impression that I got from the screenshots. And it's, it's in the same style, you know, so I've just, for example, I've been working on that. I've also been working on Uncharted and Dark mm-hmm. Souls uh, and also uh, Bastion and Transistor. So I'm just taking mm-hmm. these games, like, that's a list of like four or five games, and thinking, what the role does each one play? So in the case of Stardew Valley, I'm kind of thinking about uh, the role of nostalgia in video games, you know, this, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like there's something quite nationalist about um, Stardew Valley. The, the idea is that uh, a little village, you leave, you're in, the, the game begins in a modern workplace uh, where you're just part of the horrible modern machine and then you're you're in front of your computer, and you your 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 emails are coming through. But then you receive a letter, not an email, a written letter in handwriting on an old piece of paper from your granddad, offering you the chance to leave all this horrible modernity behind and return to uh, the countryside to live a true natural pastoral existence where you can really have genuine relationships with nature and people. Uh, so I'm using this as a tool to analyse the role of nostalgia in society and how we we kind of yearn for a particular kind of return to the mm. the the serene past and pastoral imagery uh, stuff like that uh, and also how this relates to kind of politics actual politics how that uh, you know with uh, in in Europe with uh, Brexit and with uh, you know the Greece question and to some extent with Donald Trump and his discussions of America uh, the idea of a national serenity has kind of returned in politics mm. uh, and a lot of people are dreaming of a return to a, a serene national state um, and I think that this, you know, these kinds of major political global issues play out in the video game world as well. And this is why something like Stardew Valley is so appealing, that it allows us to imagine uh, this kind of impossible dream of returning to a, a little nation state where we can be pastoral and peaceful uh, as an alternative to the kind of global modernity that we're in. Perhaps fewer people are uh, really kind of chomping at the bit to get back to a pre-industrial time as uh, Stardew Valley would uh, kind of depict, but it's uh, it, it is interesting that a lot of these games do take place in you know either 
in the past or separated from the life experiences that we're most familiar with. A part of that is the escapism. But, uh, you know, this game is perhaps a little bit more honest in its approach, saying that this world still does exist. You are not living here, you know, entirely by necessity, that this is an intentional choice that the character made uh, that represents his or her values and, uh, you know, the life that he or she wanted to lead. Right, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's I think that's right. It's very self-conscious of that as a game. Stardew Valley is, is kind of runs against the dominant trend in video games currently mm-hmm. because uh, dystopian futures seem to be the, the dominant video game mm. uh, landscape which is out there. So, you know, most of the stuff I'm playing and I'm, I'm seeing on the best-selling lists and, and I'm seeing on the the AAA releases is is various kinds of dystopian futures you know from of course zombie games but also all sorts of other kinds of uh, and and I think that uh, so Stardew Valley is kind of the opposite in that it offers you instead of a uh, experience of the dystopian future it offers you the utopian past um mm. so I started to think about how do these two different uh, features of video games appeal to us we want on the one hand uh to return to a pastoral uh, utopia from the past, and on the other hand, to experience the uh, horrible dystopian future. Uh, so it's kind of contradictory, and I ended up coming to the conclusion that they're they're not as contradictory as they seem, um, because both of them are sending us one message, and it's this, that things used to be peaceful, and they're heading towards disaster, and uh, I think it makes you, to, to return to the question of capitalism, I think it makes us, uh, it's supposed to make us kind of feel grateful that uh, at least we're not in the world of The Last of Us, or, uh, yeah. you know, so it's like saying, okay, capitalism is bad, um, but we should be grateful that we're not, uh, you know, in, in the kind of dystopian collapse. And we, I think it's the problem is that we can only, if we think about an alternative society to capitalism, we've got two choices. One is a nostalgic dream of the utopian past, and the other is a kind of dystopian future which is in which everything is barren wasteland. So it kind of points out to us the problem we've got that uh, in, our, in our wider society, we're stuck in a kind of catch-22 where we want to create maybe social alternatives, but every mm-hmm. dream we have is either a nostalgic return to the past or uh, just uh, the kind of absolute dystopia, you know. So it kind of the the two types of game actually show us a kind of social problem that we've got at the moment as as people mm. who may want to change the kind of uh, capitalist situation. You know, or if you think about it in kind of a uh, grand wheel of time kind of way, uh, a lot of these um, kind of dystopian future games like uh, like Fallout Four, for example, while it depicts a landscape of of despair and certainly that is the predominant emotion that one would feel in um you know being a part of that world it there is also a sense of of um and a peace and returning returning to the land and returning to uh, individual cities that don't necessarily have contact with one another and relying on family and some of the values that you might associate with being kind of old world and not capitalist and so you know it, it's kind of a, almost saying that if we don't go back to that ourselves then uh then the future is going to take us to the same place um but you know just this added level of despair and destruction yeah I, I, I totally agree with that point actually and it, it makes me think that and that yet and that yet again that the 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 
something like Stardew Valley is not dissimilar mm. to Fallout, even though they appear right, like yeah. the opposite. Because in Stardew Valley, that the story is that uh, you know the, the 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 village, the little village has uh, the only way to access it is by bus, but the bus stop is broken. So it's exactly <laughs> like you said. We've got no choice but to start again as a small community mm. and rebuild. Uh, and hmm. be self-sufficient as a small community, uh, and the same is true of, and I think uh, you, you, what you pointed out in, in same is true in Fallout, but not just that. Even in like The Last of Us, in all sorts of zombie uh, dystopian games, uh, the 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 negative side is I'm being munched up by zombies, but the the payoff is we get to start again, we get another chance, mm-hmm. right? That's what we're kind of looking for, seeking another chance to rebuild from the beginning, and that's where yes, family values uh, and and sort of small community values uh, come in. Um, so so yeah, I think that's a there's a kind of hidden enjoyment of of those kind of apparently awful landscapes in, in found there, and I think it shows us that we we I think there's also a problem here that we we like to believe again what what I hope I was kind of getting at you know we like to believe that the solution is to return to traditional older values, and I actually don't think that that is that is going to be a solution to our problems. I think these games are giving us a kind of sense that uh, a way out of the problems of modernity is to return to uh, the traditional values of the past. So that that could be a dangerous kind of message to be sending to people. We need to kind of th- interrogate that. Now you used the word rebuild a couple of times. And like I said, I wasn't familiar with, uh, well, uh, I haven't spent time with Stardew Valley anyways, but uh, what type of society are you building that into? Because I get the sense that in a game like Fallout or you know even The Last of Us or something, the ultimate kind of implicit goal the ultimate good would be to return to how things were before to return to the machine and the city and you know uh to build robots and be the the biggest gun-toting badass on the wasteland in but how does uh how does stardew mm. valley and a frame well the, I, the good, goal good question i mean I'm, I'm i'm not finished well i don't i i get the impression the game probably doesn't end but i'm mm-hmm. not got into the uh basically it's you, you start with the the very basic uh traditional farming tools like an axe and a, a, a hoe and then you start to improve your tools and you can see modernity creeping in uh, and mm. now I, I'm feeling already in my progress of the game a little bit nostalgic for the beginning of Stardew Valley before these <laughs> horrible modern tools <laughs> became available and my farming became more industrialised mm. uh, and, I, and that, that, is, that shows you like how we're constructed as, as, as people and how our own nostalgia works like uh mm-hmm. it's this always this kind of uh it's, it's preying on this um this tendency we've got to like prefer things in the most natural way and to dislike mm-hmm. kind of modern technology uh, and i think it's it's uh yeah it's, it's asking us to kind of reflect on those weird um on those weird uh, feelings of nostalgia we have for the past. So I think this is a good example of a game which which is actually forcing you to experience something um, like your own nostalgic desires and then reflect on them. And possibly that that can show you something about how you're kind of how we're constructed socially and where we are at this social moment. So it's an example of a game which is far more than just a distraction, uh, which is actually potentially going to force us to kind of consider our our situation in new new ways. Now, when you talk about kind of world-ending scenarios, uh, I did want to kind of again go back to one of the examples that you had brought up before. That it sounds like you've done a lot of kind of study on and writing about, which is Cookie Clicker. 
Uh, now that <laughs> takes a very different approach to an end of the world type scenario, but for as simple mechanically as the game is, it, it does pack in a fair amount of um, of really uh, perhaps exaggerated to the point of like political cartoon mm. um, economic commentary and uh, some actually really subversive story elements that, mm. that come into the experience partway through. And so I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more on that. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually just recently given an interview on this where someone was writing an article on Cookie Clicker mm. for the, for a, a newspaper called The Colonel. It's online. Uh, and uh, they, they contacted me to ask me what I thought about Cookie Clicker. Uh, so, and and I, I agree with you. Subversive is the right word for this game. Uh, this is a game which is, um, yeah, and, and, and it's it's a... So you're actually, we're actually kind of, in a way, undermining my own argument in the book because this is a typical distraction, but I think there's a very subversive message in, in this game too. Mm-hmm. And it's that it's uh, because, it's as you say, it starts in a similar way. to not, It's got nostalgia involved. It's like grandma's baking cookies. Oh, how authentic, mm-hmm. how lovely. And then uh, industrialization begins to happen and uh, cookies are made by factories. You, you start to destroy the environment in your cookie production and uh, everything becomes automated so that you're in the kind of emblem of modernity an automated world in which nothing is genuine anymore and the humans are just part of a machine and you've got hundreds of grandmas just being part of the cookie cookie factory uh and then of course at the end of cookie clicker well, there's no actual end but it's 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 collapse right it's absolute collapse mm-hmm. uh the, everyone rebels against you it's like it is a, it is also a kind of apocalypse game uh uh, mm-hmm. A kind of end of the world. The grandmas turn against you. Everything's chaos, and I think this is kind of showing you the message. This is this is Cookie Cooker has a, a, an argument, which is that if society continues in the way it's going, uh, it's going to implode from within um, and destroy itself. So capitalist success, uh, you know, will kind of eventually lead to capitalist to the ruin of the whole system. So it's kind of giving you the message that this system is going to implode from within if it keeps on going uh, the way it has. Yeah, but even in the midst of this kind of uh, Lovecraftian like nightmare scenario that begins to unfold, your numbers are still going up and you are (laughs) benefiting from the chaos. And so you are, as the uh, kind of world's most wealthiest capitalist, uh, immune to the danger that Mm. is uh, engulfing the rest of the world. So it also shows you how uh, the, soci- the collapse of society affects kind of all but the uh, corporation owners. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. Uh, and I, yeah, I think that's very good. And again, this is this is yet another dystopian game. I think uh, dystopia and, and utopia are two kind of vital. Um, words when it comes to discussing video games and i think overall i'd probably say that uh, they point us to a, a kind of um a very important problem that we we cannot really imagine alternatives to modern capitalism mm-hmm. but we find it very easy to imagine alternatives to like the end of the world and this is a kind of argument i'm actually taking from a book called capitalist realism uh, which kind of says you know it doesn't doesn't discuss video games but it says that the problem of our society is that we uh, we ca- we can't imagine an alternative to our capitalist system but all we can imagine is the end of end, the apocalypse zombie apocalypses mm-hmm. so it gives us the impression that the alternative to capitalism is zombie apocalypse <laughs> right mm. and i think that's something very relevant in video games that, that and, and nowhere is the apocalypse more prominent than the video game industry at the moment uh, so on the one hand it's these games are kind of unconsciously selling us the image that uh, the if we don't save capitalism this is the kind of alternative we can imagine uh so um 
they reflect this social problem that we're, we're kind of stuck within capitalism and unable to dream of, of kind of alternatives. Yeah, throughout history, we've seen many ends of empires and ends of ages. And, uh, you know, we, we've watched ages cycle by and um, peoples come and go. But it is hard to kind of imagine what, uh, what the end of the current age will look like and what will go on to replace it and uh, kind of the only vision that we are presented within video games for the most part is uh, kind of either this uh, mass effect utopia where we have ascended into this kind of star trek like galaxy where we are you know space cowboys and we um, kind of ride the the forevermore and peacefully make uh, trade agreements with alien races and learn about their cultures and then the uh, the d- dystopias of the the fallouts and the last of us and and all and um there there's very little kind of gray area in between those two any longer uh you know like even um in the in literature and film things like logan's run did a good job of 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 mixing the utopian and the dystopian elements and, you know, showing you the, uh, the bright sides of the dark places and the dark sides of the, uh, of the really hopeful places as well. So, mm. um, yeah, it's yeah. interesting to see these visions emerge because they are emerging from the cultural context of, you know, the modern age and, and they reflect a certain amount of, uh, the hopes and fears of the people that are creating them. Yeah, I, I think that's it. That, that's that's kind of why I really think these things are so. I mean, what is the the, the video games are? You mm. know, what video games are is like like novels. You know, they're kind of projections of mm. people's dreams, fantasies, imaginations. And so, you know, if we can say that the video game space is a projection of people's kind of dreams and imaginations, uh, then we can see that they're sort of social texts which can teach us really important things about ourselves um, because they they show us what we dream of and how we dream and that can reveal things which we didn't even realize about ourselves so um yeah i mean uh, the typical um I mean, the typical argument that's made about video games is that they're escapists. They're escapism. We, you kind of mm-hmm. mentioned escapism before, but that this mm-hmm. is kind of usually the end of a discussion, right? People say, oh, well, it appeals because it's escapism. Now, I've just, just been talking to one of my students, actually, uh, Jeffrey Tam. He's writing. He's a fellow video game analyst, and he's writing on Fallout, which you just mentioned. Um, and his, his, his contention about Fallout is that um, in this escapist world, you make all the decisions. All the decisions you make are uh, informed by who you are as a person in real life. Um, so... Um, that the 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 experience you feel while you're playing you feel like it's escapism but in actual fact what it's doing it ends up re- you end up making all the same decisions and rehearsing all the same structures that you have in your own society in real life so mm-hmm. to say that a video game is escapism should really be the start of of the discussion right it's like saying the video game is a dream uh, or the video game is a, a kind of fantasy uh, and w- what we need to then do is analyze those fantasies in order to kind of learn how they teach us about our own dreams and what those dreams and fantasies kind of show us as a society so i think yeah to, to they are video games are escapism and, and but this this is not the this is just the start of a, a discussion of, of, the, of, the, of each game really uh, whereas yeah, my, yeah. my parents would have said oh it's just escapism and that'd be it <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. You know, we here at uh, at Kane and Rince, we uh, we tend to take a kind of art history approach to video games and think that um, to really understand 
a video game, it's worth contextualizing it not only in the time that it came from, uh, that that does show you um, kind of the ideological roots of how this type of game came to be in the first place, but also how the message of the game, whether it's conveying it narratively or mechanically, has changed in the changing context as time has gone by. And, you know, just like any work of literature, um, you know, no art is dead. Like, art continues to change and be reinterpreted in different contexts. Right, right. And, and maybe even more so in video games because uh, the user has actual creation control over the story that's unfolding on yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I, it's, I couldn't agree more. I've just written an article myself uh, for, for a really cool site, uh, Existential Gamer, which is new. Uh, and it's, um, you, you probably like it. it it's, uh, it's the article is on, uh, the, I mean, the site shares much with, with you guys and, and the article mm-hmm. is on Ski Free. Do you remember that they're kind of, it's from yeah, 1992, yeah. you know, and, and my, my, <laughs> my article is, is, is intent is to compare because Ski Free just got re-released kind of officially and there's been a few there's been an android version i think it's called zombie ski free and an ios version um <laughs> and uh, yeah of course and uh, there's there's this new thing called the windows 3.1 showcase which is like a website where they've reloaded all the old mm. windows games it's quite cool itself uh you can play win risk and uh, election 92 chestnet all this <laughs> all this stuff we, uh, so uh, and 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 ski free is on there, and uh, everyone's playing ski free. No one's playing all the other stuff. Uh, so <laughs> so ski free's had a bit of a return. And my my article uh, for for them was that to discuss the difference, you know. And I basically said that uh, in 1991 this game was totally mad, and it kind of sat in our computers as a kind of bad egg, uh, and it had a kind of bizarre, unregulated enjoyment, um, which was absolutely the opposite of um, all the other games that were on offer at that time. Whereas mm. now it's yet another distraction it matches up with a lot of the things we were just talking about it's become yet yet just one more of the distractions which i would say is is kind of preventing us from thinking um uh, so exactly what you've just said this is one text which has not changed um and yet the context in which it's being enjoyed uh, is uh, totally controlling uh, the actual role of the game in society so it may as well be a completely different game because the way in which the game is uh, like any yeah. text like any piece of art the way in which it's consumed and the effect it has has totally changed uh, so i couldn't agree more that you know we've got to have a kind of uh, two-pronged approach with these games you know we've got to think where they're coming from and what they're doing uh, and also uh, where they're being enjoyed and how they're being enjoyed back in the old day back when ski free was still new uh, I, I think that the uh, the predominant thing that it gave you was a real sense of freedom and you achieved that freedom by in a way kind of breaking the game there was that key that you could press i don't know if it was the f key or whatever that would make your skier go yeah. much faster and that would send you kind of out of control you couldn't uh you know avoid rocks or trees like you could at normal speed but you could also outrun the yeti which was the ultimate end of the level you could try <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> i think they'd, they'd keep throwing faster and faster yetis at you but you would feel um you would feel empowered because you were able to break the game yeah. uh, as opposed to the uh, its contemporaries, you know, the jazz balls and the chips challenges and stuff at the time that were very much like, uh, you know, you, you could not break those games. Those mm-hmm. were very simple games that were made to be played with a very specific set of rules. Whereas now, uh, if a game's broken in the way that Ski Free can be broken, it, it almost feels... 
I don't know, almost, uh, it's almost like being caught naked outside or something. Like mm. it's, uh, it, yeah. it's kind of an unpleasant experience. The, the glitch and stuff, the, the role yeah. of the glitch. I think that's really, you're onto something that could be fascinating because Ski Free was the game that could be broken and it was designed mm. to be that. I don't know if you know this, but if you did certain things in certain combination, like if you were to like make yourself stop and then jump backwards over a, a rock, you could turn it into a mushroom. Uh, and if you um, if you um, if you uh, like ran over enough dogs, they would start to like uh, bleed yellow liquid, uh, and uh, you could set fire to little communities and stuff like that. So it was this wow. it was this um, it was this kind of freedom, uh, and the but the, the game was deliberately kind of breakable. It was it was totally mad actually. There were no rules and regulations, uh, whereas its mm. contemporaries you know involve things like solitaire. You know, it's completely structured experience. Um, right. And the, one of the things I, I tried to say in this article, which I think is also relevant here, is that uh, to go back to your question about rational recreation, you know, a lot of these games were rational recreation in the sense that they were designed to improve us as people, uh, make us think. Minesweeper was uh, basically a, a maths practice, uh, logic practice. Solitaire was um, mm. strategic strategic win risk was strategic uh, and most games uh, involved some kind of self-improvement whereas ski free was this totally chaos you know totally mad <laughs> no rules no regulations no order um and which made it compared to its contemporaries a, a bloody bizarre experience um and it felt subversive and i think it probably was in some ways whereas now yeah. that actually characterizes the game more but the comparison you just made between sort of yeah finding that those glitches were deliberately included uh, in mm -hmm. order to create a strange feeling when they were encountered whereas now the experience of seeing a glitch in a game is, is totally different right it's this sort of like you feel a little disappointed and well more often than not it can end your experience no the glitches of today are uh yeah, I, there's a lot of like falling through floors and just being outside of the world and having to, you know, reset the console mm, or, yeah. or, you know, even being booted back so to the desktop a, that, after a game crashes. And see, that's uh, that's a little bit less fun. Exactly. There's a fantastic game uh, on the PS4 called, uh, I think it's called Apotheon. It's like a Greek, you basically yeah, yeah. play as a Greek, but it, and I would have just, I was just loving it, you know, until you get to about 40% of the way through. And then the, it's so often glitches that I end up giving up. You know? So mm. yeah, it's not, whereas in Ski Free, the glitch would, you'd celebrate the discovery of a glitch you know it was just a, so yeah exact i mean that's something we we can't really answer probably in this conversation but we're definitely that that's the kind of methodology i'm looking for like find something which is totally bizarre like that how has the experience of encountering a glitch kind of changed and whatever what yeah. kind of feeling that produces in us uh, and then maybe like yeah that, that could be something to unpack and explore probably points to a very unusual kind of enjoyment uh, which I'd like to sort of find out. So, so that was the other kind of project of my my first book. It's just not just all about distractions. It's called Enjoying It, uh, Candy Crush and Capitalism, and it's about all different kinds of enjoyment. And one of the things I wanted to do was look for the the weirdest kinds of enjoyment in society uh, and try and kind of analyze them. Like those those these ski free would have been a great case study for that. So, uh, where can people find this book if they're interested in doing some more reading on the subject? Um, this book is just um, it's with a uh, zero books, which is a, a kind of really really great um publisher because they just make pay cheap paperback books um and make it like readily available uh, but they publish like you know not it's not uh, like kind of radical politics and stuff like that so it's like seven quid it's on amazon.com or .co.uk it's like it's like seven quid or maybe even sometimes less uh, and it's just really short so yeah people might are interested they can just easily get hold of that and uh hopefully in the near future i'll have a a bigger more uh 
more sustained study of, of, of PS4 games for people. And is there a uh, an ebook version for somebody who can't oh, yeah. help but look at screens? Yeah, uh, yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah, it's the same, 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 same method. You can get an even okay. cheaper ebook via Amazon. I think it's only a few dollars. So, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, please do check it out and uh, and. Uh, yeah, hope I hope it's enjoyed. I think that's one thing. I was, how does the enjoyment of reading kind of compare with the enjoyment of games? Uh, is something I want to kind of push, and I, I think that like uh, when I was writing the book and reading books, I, I feel like I'm enjoying them in a productive way. Whereas when I'm playing mm-hmm. games, I, I I think they're unpro- that I feel like was unproductive. Uh, so I'm interested to to sort of uh, uh, well see how that plays out when it's a book about video games. <laughs> Right. Well, I think one of the things that makes video games enjoyable in the first place is that you are getting a really kind of condensed, easily digestible experience of learning and having that learning immediately tested. And so, you know, this type of kind of educational reading is still kind of working towards that ultimate goal of learning more mm. and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, having that learning tested by the uh, thoughts that the readers and um listeners have afterwards yeah i'd, I'd uh yeah that, that i couldn't i couldn't agree more i kept finding that like my my academic work my and my my mm-hmm. writing was was in was enjoyable in a really productive way and my gaming was enjoyable in a really unproductive way and i think that's actually wrong and what i've tried to do is kind of unsettle that um by by kind of and now i i, I get to feel that uh, video games are, are productive when I play them because I can maybe write something about it or, or whatever. <laughs> sure. But I definitely think it's wrong <laughs> that we have these ideas that what, certain kinds of enjoyment are unproductive and others mm-hmm. are productive. And I think video games, you know, they, they really suffer from being seen in this really simple, straightforward way. Uh, unproductive, escapism, nothing more than that. Uh, and uh, one, one thing I hope I've done in this book, which I think you, you know, hopefully your, your, your listeners will be interested in, is just try and unsettle that and show how complex and interesting all these kinds of enjoyment we experience when gaming are. So uh, you mentioned also that you are looking to turn your eye towards the PlayStation and some of the politics surrounding that in your next book. I don't want to undercut the uh, future work that you're doing or provide spoilers too early, but is there anything you want to say about that project? Well, um, at the moment, I'm... Hmm. Uh, at the moment, I'm interested in in in, uh, in treating the the play, a PlayStation game uh, as a literary text. So whilst literary mm-hmm. texts, uh, you know, have uh, a whole history of being respected, even the most uh, what is considered to be the most lowbrow literature is considered to be uh, really worthy of analysis. And and why and how it's popular is considered to be really worthy of analysis. Now, on the right, flip yeah. side, video games. Um, uh, so, so popular culture studies is becoming more and more popular. People love to discuss in university Twilight and novels like that, and why and how they're so popular. But on the other hand, video games just don't have that reputation yet at all. And I think video game studies is kind of growing. Um, but I, I, I'm firm. We're working towards here, <laughs> which, which exactly a site like yours is really working towards. And you know, it's becoming more uh, visible in the university as well. There's one or two mm-hmm. for people who are doing really great work on it. Um, but uh, what I want to do is just kind of, I really do believe that video games and and uh, PlayStation is just my personal I think to talk about all video games would just be you know this is a this is needs to be a whole genre of study uh you know right. just one book uh, so I, I just I'm personally more of a PS4 gamer partly because now it's the only console I can I can't play a computer game because I need both hands whereas uh, I, I'm playing all the PS4 games that I can use one hand so I can hold my baby in the other hand uh <laughs> you know, she's up all night and this is gaming t- potential gaming time so I try to uh 
uh, yeah, play my, hold my controller in one hand, the baby in the other hand. So I'm playing all puzzle games at the moment. It's slower paced. You don't need both hands. Mm. But it's, in any case, uh, my point is that this is what I'm playing at the moment, most of the time, PS4. So my idea is to take a selection of PS4 games and study them as if they were serious literary texts. Uh, some of these are... are I, make the parallel with highbrow literature i think some of these games uh mm -hmm. some of these indie games and some of these triple a games even are uh, very complex texts which are asking us to think again about our gaming our experiences of in gaming our enjoyment our identities our politics our gender politics our uh, nationalisms uh, and all those things and make us reinterrogate them other games, I think, are totally just symptoms of our problematic capitalism, uh, looking to kind of placate us and, and implicate us in some pretty awful ideologies. Um, and But all of them are worthy of study. And so my idea is to have a, a book which treats a selection, you know, a, a very small selection uh, of, say, 10 games uh, and treats them as, as serious texts and, and tries to look at all the psychological and philosophical and political issues that are raised and, and questioned by those, those video games as texts. Hmm. That's fascinating. That's the, that's kind of the exact kind of thing that we love to do. And so, you know, I'm really curious to see where this, uh, this project takes you. Uh, do you have any ideas for, uh, the types of games that you're going to want to examine? Hmm. Well, uh, I, I've just done, uh, I'm, I'm, also writing for a YouTube channel, which is a which does like the philosophy of mm -hmm. video games. You might have seen it. it's called Eight Bit Philosophy. Uh, Wisecrack TV is the YouTube channel, mm -hmm. and I've just done a, a video on the, the philosophy of Dark Souls. Uh, just did, was writing for them, and um, uh, and I think Dark Souls is something I, I would like to do a, a whole chapter on. Uh, I think okay, there's yeah. so much in there. Uh, there was a lot. <laughs> it's a pretty dense game. <laughs> yeah, and I, I felt like our, uh, you know, we covered at uh, the video we've been making for, which is not out yet. Uh, it has only kind of covered a tiny, tiny element of that. And, but again, it's this, like you said about the history of art, you know, that could be useful with Dark Souls. It's all the images it uses. It's like right. plunging into this weird medieval uh, fantasy world. You know, it's uh, full of kind of artistic images and, and strange kind of um, landscapes. So something like that would be would be one. And then like, but and then I'd, I'd probably try and cover a few classics, you know, like the new Tomb Raider, GTA, um, mm. and then some indie games like, you know, Outlast. I'm playing Outlast at the moment uh so at the moment i'm just collecting oh, and uh, bastion and transistor uh, the new mm, yeah, uh, so yeah. so those are just a collection and what i'm doing at the moment is just sort of uh, writing small articles on these games for uh, various websites and journal journal places and, and maybe some podcasts and then collecting notes on all these games and eventually i'll decide which i think are the the sort of 10 most interesting and and turn them into much more sort of sustained case studies of the what what are the politics and experiences mm. of playing the ps4 i'd also suggest if you haven't tried it yet the swapper is full of oh, all sorts of interesting philosophy you're not the first person to say that <laughs> and it's what I want to make sure is that this is not because something I've I've always been kind of against in literary studies is the idea that there are kind of uh, clever and interesting games and then stupid right. mindless ones. You know, with books yeah, it's the yeah. same. You know, I've I've always been of the belief that uh, sometimes the Hollywood film uh, raises more interesting issues than the art house cinema, uh, and I think mm -hmm. I want to do the same with games. Like it's not. It's sometimes it's the indie games which uh, produce make us really reflect on on the kind of. Uh, on who we are other times something some really weird and interesting kinds of enjoyment arise from the most kind of mainstream hollywood games you know so i'm going to do a, a definitely want to this isn't going to be like look how interesting some of these quirky games are uh mm -hmm. nor is it going to be like uh 
just just a study of all the popular ones. I want it to be a kind of mixture of, of those two things. Yeah, it's probably wise actually. You know the um, the little ones like the unfinished swan and stuff like they do kind of beg mm. in their simplicity and in their abstraction to be analyzed on that deeper level. But uh, yeah, you know that that's not to say that um, you know something like Need for Speed doesn't have. <laughs> Uh, cultural values being reflected certainly in its design and its its, uh, mechanical engineering i couldn't i just couldn't agree more that that is exactly what what i think that like it's not just the games which are are actively trying to discuss some of these issues sometimes it's the ones that are unconsciously reflecting uh kind of Mm -hmm. social and cultural values which need to be kind of analyzed the most so try and find a nice mixture of those things i think the stuff you're you're doing on on cane and rinse is is great towards that and i'm hoping that this kind of video game studies just uh becomes as as big as it deserves to be because there's, there's nothing more dangerous than a whole industry which millions and millions of people are enjoying which never gets interrogated yeah, and uh, you know we're starting to see, um, I guess within the more popular sphere, we're starting to see some of the same criticism that would be applied to uh, film and literature mm. start to be applied to games, and a lot of it is not going over very well at all with the audiences, which is unfortunate. You know, kind of a this new medium is still going through some adolescent pains as far as uh, it, its acceptance into this critical conversation yeah. we've seen people uh analysts like anita sarkeesian receive some really terrible abuse on um, the social media platforms <laughs> we've seen people who uh like to uh you know maybe uh, wax philosophical about some of these games mm. be called pretentious yeah. and yeah uh, it's just you know people who want to detract from the conversation more than add to it well i, I agree with that and I, but, and I think it also points to something we've got to be careful of ourselves like you know uh, i don't think we should because people will not like the idea that games just become yet another thing which you know philosophers or academics think they know and understand um you know and i think that like we can easily we can sometimes we, we don't want to be people saying oh well uh, i with my philosophy head and all the reading i've done can easily mm-hmm. explain to you your uh, <laughs> your mindless enjoyment of this uh, this uh-huh. you know game people are going to find that you know pretty sort of horrible and i, I tend to agree <laughs> uh, the task we've got is to make sure that video games don't just become yet another thing we can uh, explain uh, using all what we what we think we know but uh, you know a big space for loads of interesting discussions that can 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 make us think think again about the things we think we know uh, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that you know, yeah, striking striking the right balance of that is, is kind of our task. And I think, as you say, yeah, it's not going to be an easy one. Well, ultimately, we can study games and know them mechanically and know design philosophies, but ultimately, they are an expressive and um, and an and, uh, um, projective medium, just like any other artistic medium. And so, ultimately, we are hoping to get to know more about humanity, not just games, because games aren't naturally occurring. Like the real soul that goes into a game, the thing that's really worth analyzing is that human component. And I think that well will never run dry no matter how much study is done. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree. So, uh, so yeah, you know, here's to the future of video game studies. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we are... Uh, um, very keen to catch up on on that or keep up on that kind of thing 
And I, I'm sure that our listeners are as well if they have stuck with us and what we do for however many hundred <laughs> shows we've done so far, then uh, then yeah, I'm, I'm sure we have a a stable full of people who are really just itching to to get into this conversation and to start looking at games in this way. Well, I really hope so. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. And let's stay in touch and uh, speak again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. If people want to uh, to follow you at all, is there any kind of social uh, media yeah, presence yeah, 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 yeah. where you put uh, your thoughts out regularly? There's, uh, well, my, my blog, uh, which I'm the kind of editor of, which is relevant mm-hmm. to, to what we're talking about. It's called Everyday Analysis. And we, mm-hmm. we do cover video games, but not exclusively. I, I'm just, uh, m- me and my friend edit that. Uh, and we've been doing that for three years. And we, we discuss everything from, it's everything that's everyday. Uh, so that could be politics and stories, but it could also be cartoons um, and uh, TV programs. Programs you know, on the homepage at the moment. We've got a discussion of uh, Football Manager, uh, one of mm-hmm. uh, uh, YouTube sensation Yarn Cat, one of Fresh Meat. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's an analysis of all everyday stuff, including video games sometimes. Uh, that's just a, it's called Everyday Analysis. It's on Facebook, Everyday Analysis, and it's just everydayanalysis.com. So uh, uh, yeah, if anyone would like to get involved with that, we're always looking for new contributors. If you want to see more about what we're doing, just uh, check out Everyday Analysis. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on and chatting with us. Okay. And we are uh, always very happy to hear more people who are working within the uh, kind of academic and philosophical video game discussion. Thanks so much for having me on. Really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Cheers, so this was Alfie, Alfie Bowne, straight from Hong Kong, from the other side of the world, uh, joining us today on Canon Rinse. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>